Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Just go to ladderlife.com slash goal. Well, it was a record-setting day and week for the Dow Jones. We closed above 34,000 on a weekly basis for the first time ever Today was the second day that we closed above 34,000 because we closed just above it yesterday. We tacked on another 164 spot, 68 points today. We closed the day and the week just above 24,200. High for the day, new record intraday high, 34,256 spot, 75. S&P also finished the day on a new all-time record high, 4185.47 is where we closed. This was a record, the intraday record high. Again, new all-time high for the S&P, 4,191, spot 31. Again, of course, all of these records are not adjusted for inflation. We are measuring stocks in U.S. dollars, and those dollars continue to lose purchasing power. Obviously, they're losing value on a relative basis relative to other fiat currencies, but all fiat currencies are losing value relative to what goods and services and assets that you can buy with them. Also, the Russell 2000 and the NASDAQ up a little bit on the day as well, but neither of those two indexes made new record highs today. Now, before I get into what happened in some of the other markets where I think the action is more significant and it probably gives us a good idea of what's likely to happen in the trading days that lie ahead, I want to talk about some of the economic data that came out over the last couple of days since I did Wednesday's podcast. First of all, on Thursday, we got the number for retail sales. And we had a big drop in February. And that drop was because we had a strong number in January when uh, consumers had stimulus checks. And then in February, they didn't have another stimulus check. And so they weren't able to spend as much money shopping. And so we had the drop in February. But in March, of course, new stimulus checks, I think, began arriving in the mail. And as a result, analysts were anticipating a big increase in uh, retail sales to rebound from the February slump. So the forecast was for a 5.6% rise. And rise we did, but the gain was 9.8%, almost double what had been expected. And the decline from February was actually revised to a smaller decline, just 2.7%. Even if you X out vehicles, 
the prior month 2.7% drop was revised to only a 2.5% drop. And then instead of rebounding 5%, which was expected, the rebound was 8.4%. Even if you X out gasoline, we still had an increase of 8.2%. That's versus 4.4% estimate. Again, almost double what had been forecast, a slight revision to the prior month from down 3.3 to down 3.1. And if you look at the control group, they were looking for a 3.5% rise following the 3.5% decline from February. That February decline was revised to just 3.4%, so not much uh, difference. But the March rebound, again, a lot stronger, 6.8%, almost twice what had been expected. Now, first of all, one of the important things you have to remember when it comes to retail sales is they're not adjusted for inflation. So there are two ways for consumers to spend more money buying stuff retail. One way is they can buy more stuff, right? They can buy more products and they're spending more money because they're getting more stuff. But the other way that retail sales can go up is if the stuff that you're buying is more expensive. And so you end up spending more money to maybe buy the same stuff, or maybe you spend more money and you buy even less stuff, right? And that could be happening. And eventually that's going to be happening. Now, my guess would be that the big jump in March retail sales is a combination of both. I think, yes, consumers are actually buying more stuff, but they are also paying a lot more money for the stuff that they're buying. The big problem is a lot of the people who are spending money aren't actually earning the money. They're just spending the checks that they got from the government. And a lot of the people who are buying stuff are buying stuff with money that they should be using to pay their rent, but they're not paying their rent because they can't be evicted or they're using money that they should have used to pay their student loans but there's a moratorium so they don't have to pay their student loans. So there's a lot of extra money that people can spend that they really shouldn't be spending. And we know that people are buying more stuff because we look at the trade deficit going ballistic. And so there's the proof. We're buying all that stuff. It's all being imported and we are buying it. But you also know by looking at the numbers that prices are going up a lot. Stuff is getting more expensive. Anecdotally, I know this personally. I can see that. I can observe the prices that I know I'm paying. And I get emails all the time from people who are showing me these huge jumps in the cost of the goods that they've been buying. I mean, it is a huge surge. And even though the, the, the official numbers are showing that, those numbers still don't quite capture the entirety of the price rises. So even though we're seeing very big numbers from the official uh, data, the unofficial data, which is the real world experience of consumers, is obviously much greater uh, than what the government is, is admitting to. But I thought there was a very big contrast between this huge beat on retail sales and the huge miss on industrial production because these data sets were released, I think at the same time, or maybe the industrial production was a little later in the day, but they were both released on Thursday. And the consensus was for a rebound from the big drop in industrial production that we had in February. The initial report was a 2.2% decline. That was revised down to an even bigger drop of 2.6. So while the retail sales numbers were improved with the revisions, the industrial production numbers got worse. Then the 2.8% rebound that had been expected was actually just a 1.4% rebound. That is exactly half of what had been anticipated, but we rebounded from an even lower level than people thought we were going to rebound from. So the numbers were even worse. That continues if you just look at manufacturing output. The drop in February of 3.1 was revised to a bigger drop of 3.7. And instead of a 3.6% rebound in March, we only rebounded by 2.7%. Then look at capacity utilization. The initial estimate of 73.8% from February, that was downwardly revised to 734 
And the rebound up to 75.7, well, we only rebounded to 74.4. So much weaker than expected, but almost the mirror image of the retail sales. The retail sales number was double almost what had been expected, whereas the industrial production numbers are half of what was expected. So as a nation, we're not producing that much stuff, but we're buying a lot of stuff. That, again, is evidence of the bubble economy. This is not evidence of economic strength. The strength is happening outside the United States. The strong economies are the ones that are producing all those goods that are being loaded up on containers and shipped to the United States. The country that is exporting empty containers because it's not producing anything, all we're doing is printing money and spending it, that is the weak economy. And finally, today, we got the housing start numbers for the month of March. The February numbers were also revised upward a bit. The initial report was 1.421 million starts. That was revised to up 1.457 million. But the March number really blew out the estimate, which was 1.62 million. We ended up with 1.7 three nine million starts that is the highest in 15 years so you got to go back to 2006 right near the very peak of the housing bubble that popped and ushered in the 08 financial crisis that's the last time that we had a month where we had this many housing starts in the united states permits also jumped they revised the february number from up 1.682 million to 1.72 million. And we came out ahead of the 1.75 million expected. We got 1.766 million permits. So one of the few things that we are building in the United States is houses. But the problem is a lot of the materials that are needed to build those houses are imported And all of the costs are going way up. So we're starting more homes, but it's costing us a lot more money to build them. And it's costing buyers a lot more to buy them. Of course, where are they getting most of the money? Well, they're getting that from the Fed with record low or near record low mortgages. So this is all part of the bubble. But again, the other problem is we can't export these houses. We're running these huge deficits We can't pay for them with our houses. It's not like we can export our houses to China to help pay for our imports. I mean, sure, somebody from China could buy one of these houses, but most of these houses are probably being built in parts of the country that no one from China really wants to live. And and so it's not like we can pay for our imports uh, with our houses. In fact, because we are building so many houses, we require more imports in order to build them. So these housing starts are helping to drive even higher trade deficits. And of course, all the demand for raw materials to build these homes is helping to push up all those prices, which ultimately is not only going to affect house prices, but affect all the other goods that require the same types of raw materials as houses because as all this housing demand is bidding up those prices, if you need these raw materials someplace else, well, you have to compete with all this housing demand. So all this inflation is being fueled by the Fed. The Fed is printing all the money to make it possible, and the Fed is underwriting all the mortgages that make the finance possible. Now, of course, the markets are mainly focused on the retail sales, right? Because the U.S. economy is all about the consumer and retail spending. And so these numbers here, these retail sales numbers, were universally cheered as being bullish numbers, right? Strong numbers, evidence of a robust economy. In fact, Jim Cramer was on CNBC, I I think it was on Thursday, right? Same day. And he was saying that we are on the verge in America of the biggest boom in the history of the United States, right? This this is going to be bigger than the Roaring Twenties, bigger than anything that we had in the Gilded Age of American capitalism in the latter part of the 19th century. According to Jim Cramer, we're going to boom like we've never boomed before. Of course, that's what Donald Trump 
was saying, he was describing the economy under his presidency as the greatest boom in history. Well, now Jim Cramer is saying we're going to have the greatest boom in history under President Biden. And of course, to what is Cramer attributing this boom? Well, all the consumer spending that is a byproduct of government money printing, right? Well, if you can create an economic boom by printing money, well, Zimbabwe would be the richest country in the world. The reason it's not, the reason they're broke, and the reason they're broke in other countries that print a lot of money, like Venezuela, is because it doesn't work. You don't create prosperity by creating government. Government printing money and spending it is the way you create poverty. It's the way you destroy prosperity. But in the short run, sure, you know, while the party is going on, things look like we're prosperous because we're spending a lot of money. But people are ignoring where we're getting the money and the economic consequences. But you got to remember that Jim Cramer is the same guy that was telling everybody that there was nothing wrong with Bear Stearns. Don't worry about Bear Stearns. Don't take your money out of Bear. Bear's fine. Bear's in great shape, right? Right before Bear Stearns went bankrupt. (laughs) And of course, a lot more companies that Jim Cramer loved uh, leading up to the 2008 financial crisis would have gone bankrupt too but for the actions of the Federal Reserve. So Kramer was completely oblivious to the problems in the U.S. economy and in the financials leading up to the financial crisis. And so why would we expect any clearer vision now uh, leading up to a much worse crisis? So the fact that Kramer thinks we're on the verge of the biggest boom in economic history, it's far more likely that he's, again, a contrarian indicator. uh, And we are on the verge of the biggest economic bust in U.S. history. But the interesting thing, I guess, about these stronger numbers, right, in quotes, is that instead of the bond market selling off, We had a huge rise uh, in bond prices, a big drop in interest rates on Thursday, despite what was generally perceived to be better than accepted data, which should have made interest rates go up, but it didn't. And so we may have put in a bit of a short-term top in rates. And another interesting aspect was the dollar was notably weak yesterday on those stronger-than-expected numbers. You would have expected the dollar to have risen, but it didn't. It fell. Now, gold, which had been seeing heavy downward pressure from the rise in interest rates, had a bit of a relief rally. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gold rallied over $30 intraday. I think it ended the day maybe up about $26, but a very strong day in gold and gold stocks as the bond market rising and long-term years falling relieved a lot of that pressure uh, that had been uh, keeping gold from rising. But to me, what it really shows is that maybe traders are getting the message that it really isn't a strong economy uh, that is motivating uh, these numbers and that the markets, at least in the short run, are pricing in bigger intervention by the Federal Reserve to keep interest rates from rising in the face of increasing inflation, not increasing economic growth. In fact, we did see a pretty big jump, although I think we ain't seen nothing yet on the Fed's balance sheet it was up $84.2 billion in the prior week. We're at a new record high for the balance sheet. We're just below $7.8 trillion, 
at $7.793 trillion. But I have a feeling that one of the reasons that we saw that big rise in bond prices was that the Federal Reserve was in the markets buying treasuries. And we'll find out when we get the numbers next Thursday just how high the Fed's balance sheet exploded above $8 trillion in order to stop interest rates from rising. And as the markets figure out what the Fed is up to, we should have more and more money leaving the dollar and going into gold. In fact, the dollar continued to decline today Dollar index down for the second day in a row. Not as big a decline as we had yesterday, but still we settled the week at 91 spot 54. And we closed last week at 92 spot 16. And remember, the week before, we got as high as 93 and a half almost. So we've had a pretty big drop now uh, from the mid 93 to the mid 91, about a two point drop in the dollar from the highs from the prior week. As I was saying back then, I thought the dollar was looking toppy and it looks more likely that we have set the top in the dollar and the next move is for the dollar to hit a new low uh, for this cycle. And that is very bullish for the price of gold, which was up again today. It added about another $12 to yesterday's gain. So the last two days completely wiped out the losses Earlier in the week, gold ended up settling the week up about $30, 1775-ish. Silver also finished the week strong, up about 32 cents today, back above 26 at 26.15. And the interesting thing about the move up in gold and silver and the move down in the dollar is that the bonds gave back about half of yesterday's big gains on the session. So we saw a backup in yields on the 10 and 30 year, but that did not take any of the shine off of gold nor restore any of the shine to the dollar. The dollar sold off and gold rose despite the fact that we had rising interest rates. Now remember, eventually bonds and the dollar are both going to fall together and gold is going to be rising as long-term interest rates are rising because real rates are going to be falling because the increase in inflation is going to outpace the increase in yields. And as negative yields get more negative, that is extremely bullish for gold. In fact, another news story that I read that is very bullish for gold has to do with China. Apparently, China had imposed some restrictions on its international banks uh, and its domestic banks regarding how much gold they can import into the country. Remember, China is the world's largest gold producer, but none of the gold that China produces is actually exported. They keep it all, right? But now... The Chinese government has removed those restrictions. So now domestic and international banks can pretty much import, I think, as much gold as they want, which means they're going to import a lot more. And I think China is very happy to have more and more gold imported into its country. The more gold in China, the richer China is. The more gold that the Chinese people have, the richer they'll be. I mean, China knows the dollar's days are numbered. After all, they're probably the ones that are in most control of our destiny when it comes to the dollar. And so they want to be prepared. Not only is the Chinese government probably secretly buying as much gold as it can, especially if it wants to back its new digital yuan with gold, something that I think it's going to do. I think all yuan are going to be backed by gold, uh, whether they're uh, paper or, or in digital form. But China also wants its people to have as much gold as possible. I mean, the average American has no gold at all. I mean, sure, people that listen to my podcast, you know, most of you guys probably own some gold, at least I hope you do, or some silver. Uh, but, you know, in the scheme of things, you know, what do you, I have maybe 150, 200,000 people that listen to this podcast. I mean, it's, it's a nice, uh, you know, audience, but not compared to the 300 plus million Americans who don't listen to my podcast. And a lot of these people don't own any gold. I mean, probably the average Chinese owns more gold than the average American, even though the average American today has more wealth than the average uh, Chinese. uh, That's not going to be the case probably by the end of this decade. 
especially since the people in China are accumulating gold and the people in the United States are not, or maybe they're accumulating Bitcoin or some other kind of crypto. You know, the Chinese are mining a lot of that Bitcoin and they're selling it to Americans and then they're taking that cash and they're buying gold with it. They're being smart and we're being dumb. You know, when a lot of people buy life insurance, they make a mistake of buying whole life. But most people who need insurance don't need insurance for the whole of life. If you're young and you have some kids, you need insurance to make sure that your kids will be taken care of up until the time that they can take care of themselves. Or if you have a spouse, maybe she needs your income or he needs your income. And so at that point in your life, you need some insurance. You don't need insurance for your entire life. But the reason a lot of people buy whole life insurance is because a lot of brokers have a financial interest in selling it because they make a big commission. But the best thing that you can do to buy the most insurance for your money, which is what you need, is to buy term life. That way you can really cover the people and you can buy a bigger policy and as inflation erodes the value of money and causes prices to go up, you can always increase the death benefit to keep pace with inflation. You buy whole life and you're locked into a, a fixed payment and inflation destroys your cash value. You don't need any cash value. You just need a death benefit. The smart thing is to use the money you save by buying term instead of whole life make good investments, invest that money wisely, invest it out of the dollar, invest it in foreign stocks, and then buy insurance uh, with your insurance money. And a great way to buy term life insurance is through Ladder. Ladder makes it quick and easy to get covered for life insurance. Just log on with your phone or laptop and apply. Within only a few minutes, you'll find out instantly if you're approved. After that, you can decide whether to move forward. The plans are offered at a personalized rate that can flex as your needs change. The prices are affordable, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. Since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the time to cross that off your list. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com gold. That's ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold. Oh, by the way, as long as I'm talking about gold, I want to address these rumors circulating regarding the Perth Mint. I don't know if they got started on Reddit or where they got started, but I'm reading a lot about it with respect to silver and how the Perth Mint doesn't have the silver, that there are Perth Mint customers that are uh, trying to get their silver and that they don't have it and so it's not being delivered. And, and so the idea is that the silver's not there, that there's some kind of scam, uh, and maybe I'm in on it because if you go to the Euro-Pacific website, you'll notice that Euro-Pacific Capital is a dealer for the Perth Mint, and we are. I've been a dealer for the Perth Mint, I think, since 2002. First at my broker-dealer, which I no longer own, which I sold. I was then a dealer at my bank, Euro-Pacific Bank, uh, but due to the bad publicity on the bank, uh, that relationship had to be closed, and so the bank no longer works with the Perth Mint, uh, but uh, Europe Pacific Capital still does. And I personally hold a lot of unallocated silver, my own silver at the Perth Mint. And I still recommend that people buy and store silver at the Perth Mint. What I love about the unallocated program is that the storage is free. And I know silver is bulky, especially if you own a lot of it. Now, I don't have all my silver at the Perth Mint. I've got silver in other places and there's silver that I store myself. But there's only so much that I want you know, in my, my own possession. And so I wanna have reliable third parties that will hold on to my silver. And I think the Perth Mint is a very reliable third party and your silver is not only audited, but it is guaranteed by the government of Western Australia. They guarantee that your silver is there and it's reinsured through Lloyds of London. So you've got a lot of protection from credible third parties and they're storing your silver for free. Now, you might think, wait a minute, how are they going to store your silver for free, right? Nothing's free, right? You, there, it must be some kind of a scam, but it's not a scam because the Perth Mint gets something from this relationship. You see, the Perth Mint also, you know, they mint coins and bars. And in order to do that, they need the bullion. And so 
you make a deal with the Perth Mint, hey, while you're storing my gold or my silver rather, you can take that silver and use it to make coins and bars and deliver it to customers because I don't really need my silver. So I'm going to let the Perth Mint use it. So by having this unallocated program, the Perth Mint has basically free inventory, but they actually have the silver. All of the silver in the Perth Mint program must be on deposit in the Perth Mint. So a lot of that silver is in big bars, but they get orders for small coins. So now they can melt those bars down and replace them with coins. But before they do that, they have to bring in more bars of silver or silver in in a raw form that hasn't even been made into anything. Well, let's say a miner comes to the Perth Mint. They've got all this silver. And here, here's a bunch of silver. Make coins and bars out of it. So they take in that silver. But instead of having to wait for that silver to be mined into coins, they can already have the coins ready because they mined some of the silver or they fabricated some of the silver that was already sitting there from these pooled unallocated accounts. Now, the Perth Mint gives you the option if you want to have a segregated account and have silver in a specific denomination of coins set aside that they can't commingle and use for their daily operations, they allow that too, except then they charge you storage. If you don't want to pay the storage, which adds up over the years, just say, hey, I'll take unallocated and you can use my silver. Now, you always have the right in the future to ask for that silver to be fabricated and you can tell the mint, you know, what denomination coins or bars you want and they will fabricate it for you. Now, they don't do it for free. They do charge you what it costs, but you would have paid that up front, right, if you wanted the coins right away. One of the beauties of unallocated is you don't have to pay for any of the coins. You just buy the straight bullion. So you get more silver for your money by not demanding that it be put in any type of form. You just own the ounces. And of course, if you never take delivery of the silver, you can simply sell your silver, get dollars and cash out without ever having to fabricate your metal. And so you never had to pay for coins or bars that you never took possession of but you got the free exposure to the silver. Now, here's what's happening now, and here's what is behind the rumors. There are a lot of people who have unallocated silver who all of a sudden decided that they want their actual silver. So they're calling up the Perth Mint, and they're saying, hey, I'd like to take delivery of my unallocated silver, and the Perth Mint is having to say, fine, but it's going to take a while because we've got a backlog of orders because we have an abnormally large number of people who want delivery. And because of COVID, right, we've had a slowdown in our business. We haven't been able to fabricate as many coins and we don't have as many people on the job as we normally do, again, due to COVID. And so it's going to take longer than normal to keep up with all these orders. But don't worry, you're going to get your silver. It just may take a little longer because it's going to take longer to take it out of the current form and put it into the form that you want to facilitate your order. Now, this is what's got people thinking, oh, they don't have the silver. It's a scam. They have the silver. It's not a scam. They're having the same problems that all companies are having with COVID. There is a backup in production, in supply chain. So things are going to take longer. But you have to remember that all the years that you had your silver stored in unallocated form, you didn't get charged a storage fee. And so this is the consequence of that. You know, you're not able to get your silver as fast as you would have had you had it fully allocated in your own name. But again, you know, you would have paid a lot more for that. Now, maybe when people bought their silver, they didn't anticipate a pandemic uh, that would cause this kind of bottleneck. But hey, that's what happened. So if you're in a rush to get your physical coins, well, you're going to have to wait a little longer. But there is a valid explanation for the wait. There is no conspiracy here. There is no cover up. You know, I'm not involved in it. And if you have gold or silver at Perth, your gold or silver is fine. 
It's just that if you want the coins, you're going to have to wait a little longer. But the same thing is true if you go out and buy some gold and silver coins at Shift Gold. Demand has gone way up. Delivery times are a lot longer. If you buy gold and silver coins from Shift Gold, they will not be delivered to you as quickly as we had been able to deliver them in the past when there wasn't as much demand. I mean, this is happening all over the economy. But of course, everybody likes to, you know, make a big deal out of it and read uh, conspiracies and and frauds into situations when they're not there. And of course, a lot of it is to try to drive up the price of silver, right? Hey, there's a silver shortage. There's no silver. There is the silver there. Uh, and again, this is not derivatives. I'm reading stuff. Hey, these are derivative instruments. No, they're not. You have your silver stored at the Perth Mint. It's there. It's within the premises of the mint. You just own a share of a pool amount of silver that you can turn into your own individual bars or coins whenever you want, just so long as you pay the cost of fabrication and, of course, the cost of shipping, right? Because if the Perth Mint is going to take your silver and mail it to you, that is going to also uh, involve a cost and you're going to have to pay that. But if you just sell your silver and they send you money, well, that doesn't cost anything because they could just do a wire transfer, which is you know cheap or maybe it costs something, but very little. Anyway, though, while gold and silver were making a pretty big move on Thursday and Friday, you wouldn't know that at all if all you watched was CNBC because they didn't talk about gold or silver at all. The only thing they talked about was Bitcoin and Coinbase. I mean, it was not as nonstop coverage as on the Wednesday when we had the direct listing and the Coinbase IPO, but still lots of follow-on coverage of Bitcoin and Coinbase, and no coverage at all, really, of what was happening in the gold and silver market. So while the CNBC audience is being led astray, uh, smarter people are taking advantage and buying into gold and silver. In fact, what this reminds me of, all of this euphoria, the way CNBC covered the Coinbase IPO, it reminds me very much of the way the same network covered the AOL Time Warner deal, right? Time Warner bought America Online in January 10th of 2000, right? That was near the peak of not only the internet bubble, but the NASDAQ bubble because the NASDAQ went on to fall about 80% from its early 2000 high and many of the internet stocks dropped 100% because they went to zero. But if you recall the way CNBC was framing the Time Warner purchase of AOL, it was a watershed moment for the dot-com stocks and the new economy. This was the media company of the future, right? This validated the dot-com thesis that all the people who were buying these dot-com stocks, Time Warner validated that they were right. And it's not a bubble because now it's gone mainstream. And now you have a company like Time Warner a brick-and-mortar company paying a huge amount of money in stock for a brand-new company, America Online, that was connecting people to the Internet. So there was so much hype and so much uh, fanfare and hysteria, and there was no real skepticism about this. I mean, nobody was saying, hey, maybe this is the top. May, you know, may, Maybe we're ringing the bell here. This is the top of the bubble. This is the peak. This is like a seminal event that is the epitome of, of ridiculousness that Time Warner capitulated and threw all this good money after all that AOL bad money, which is exactly in hindsight what happened. This was the peak. This was the moment that the absurdity reached a crescendo. And it was almost like a blow off top capitulation. And it was all downhill from there. So now CNBC is doing the same thing. This is a watershed moment. This is the, the validation of Bitcoin and crypto that we've gone mainstream. Now that we've got Coinbase listed, and by the way, Coinbase as an exchange is worth more than the NASDAQ or I don't know how many exchanges. It's, it's the most valuable exchange. And this is proof in the whole uh, crypto theory. And, and now it's going to go up to a whole new level that we have uh, this Coinbase uh, IPO. Now, maybe... This is the same as Time Warner buying AOL. Maybe this is the end. Maybe 
Coinbase finally getting listed is the peak of the mania. This is the capitulation because as far as CNBC is concerned, right, they're covering it the exact same way they covered Time Warner. And I have not heard a single person on CNBC say, hey, wait a minute, what if this is another Time Warner? They want to completely forget about the way they covered that deal and how completely brainwashed everybody on that network was uh, back in January of 2000. But it's the same thing now. Uh, No skepticism, no criticism, no bears. There's no Coinbase bears. Everyone they interview is a Coinbase bull. They had Anthony Scaramucci on there again today with his crypto fund. And they keep talking to, you know, the people that work there and everybody who has a various crypto fund. And they keep asking these guys, right? They're asking guys who are 100% biased. Oh, what do you think of this deal? Well, of course they're going to be bullish. I mean, they ask people who clearly have a dog in the fight, which dog is going to win the fight? And they never bring up the potential for being biased. Again, compare that to when they used to have me on CNBC. And whenever I mentioned anything positive about gold, somebody had to point out, hey, but don't you sell gold? Don't you own shift gold? I mean, aren't you just biased? Aren't you just going to always be bullish on gold? Why should we care what you have to say? We know that you're just trying to sell gold, right? Nobody has ever accused anybody who works at a crypto company of being biased, even though the entire future of their company lies with the success of Bitcoin. I mean, Coinbase is worthless if Bitcoin crashes, right? I mean, the reason that Coinbase has value is because people are willing to pay a half a percent commission to buy and sell Bitcoin. And why is there all this trading volume? Because it's going up. That's why there's trading volume. In fact, the irony, if Bitcoin actually ever succeeds at becoming a currency, right? And it actually has the low volatility that all these crypto Bitcoin pumpers claim if the volatility goes away and Bitcoin succeeds, that's actually bad for Coinbase. Coinbase needs volatility because that means there's a lot of trading. Of course, the other problem for Coinbase is if Bitcoin really is here to stay, how long can they get away with charging a half a percent commission uh, to trade Bitcoin online, right? More competition is going to come in and compete away those margins and force those commissions to come down. So even if Bitcoin succeeds, I think Coinbase loses, but Bitcoin's not going to succeed. It's going to fail. And so is Coinbase. Now, again, it's too early to tell for sure if the Coinbase IPO really is the equivalent of the Time Warner AOL deal. I mean, maybe it is. I mean, the IPO did not go as expected, and that anybody who actually bought it on the open is still down. Coinbase managed to gain today, uh, but it was down yesterday. And as I'm looking in the aftermarket, it's trading up a bit, but I think it was up. It's at $342 is where it closed, but it opened on Wednesday, I think at 381. So that's really like the price that anybody bought And of course, it got as high as 429. So you've got people with pretty big losses already on paper in Coinbase. And Bitcoin itself, despite that big rally leading up to the IPO, ended up selling off. As I'm recording, Bitcoin is around 62,000. So yes, still above 60,000, but it almost got to 65,000 on the eve of the IPO. And earlier this morning, it almost broke through 60,000. It got to 60,042, I think is the low uh, on Bitstamp. I mean, maybe it was below 60,000 on another exchange. I just happen to be looking at this particular website. Uh, but if anything, it's you know going sideways. So we're not seeing new highs in, in Bitcoin. But where we are seeing new highs is in Dogecoin. Take a look at what's going on with Dogecoin Dogecoin is eating Bitcoin. Dogecoin, it's off the highs right now. I, 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 it's at 34 cents. That's pretty close. 34 cents per Dogecoin. Now, when the year began, right, Dogecoin was like a half a cent. And now it's 34 cents. That is an enormous percentage gain. In fact, Dogecoin now has a market cap above $45 billion. Now, that may seem small compared to the $1.1 trillion market cap for Bitcoin, 
But it wasn't that long ago where Bitcoin had a market cap of less than $45 billion. And in fact, that $45 billion market cap vaulted Dogecoin above Cardano to make it into the number six spot. So it is the sixth largest cryptocurrency by market cap. Now there's 9,267 currencies. So the one that was started as a joke (laughs) is now laughing all the way to the crypto bank as the sixth largest cryptocurrency. And in fact, it's really the fifth largest cryptocurrency if you don't count Tether, because Tether is a stable coin, which may or may not be backed by dollars. And the market cap of Tether is almost $48 billion. And, you know, there's no way that there's a bank account somewhere with Tether's name on it and $48 billion in cash just sitting there. So who knows how many actual dollars are behind Tether, but that's a whole different story. And I don't have time to get into that in this podcast. But if you exclude Tether, uh, Dogecoin is now the number five uh, cryptocurrency. It's not that far behind Ripple. I mean, Ripple's about 70 billion. So it wouldn't be that big a deal to get in front of Ripple. And then number three is Binance Coin at 78 billion. I would say judging by the momentum, it would be very easy for Dogecoin by next week even to be the third biggest cryptocurrency by market cap, third only to Ethereum and Bitcoin itself. Now, whether it can ultimately pass either of those currencies, hey, who knows? Anything could happen. I mean, a lot of people could look at Dogecoin at, you know, 34, 35 cents and say, hey, that's a much better buy. I mean, why not buy something for 35 cents as opposed to buying something for $62,000? I mean, how much does Dogecoin have to go up? A lot of people, you know, buy stocks when they split. They think cheaper is better. Well, a lot of people got rich buying Bitcoin at 35 cents. Well, why not buy Dogecoin at 35 cents and see what happens? I mean, to me, if you're going to gamble on a cryptocurrency Why gamble on the cryptocurrency of the past when you can gamble on one of the future? In fact, if you look at where Bitcoin was when the year began, I think we ended 2020 at about 29,000 on Bitcoin. So yeah, we're up, we're at 32,000, but what is that, about a 10% gain from 29,000? That pales in comparison to the gain on Dogecoin. In fact, if you just do the division, at the end of 2020, If you had one Bitcoin, you could buy 5.8 million Dogecoins. Today, if you have one Bitcoin, you can only buy 182,350 Dogecoins. So that represents a depreciation of Bitcoin in terms of Dogecoin of 97%. In other words, measured by Dogecoin, Bitcoin has lost 97% of its value in 2021. Now, based on the logic of the Bitcoin hodlers and all the Bitcoin pumpers, why are they telling everybody that Bitcoin is better than gold, right? Bitcoin is better than gold because it's gone up so much more, right? Look at how much money I've made in Bitcoin versus the money you're making in gold. Bitcoin is eating gold. It's going to flip gold eventually because look at all this appreciation. Had you only bought Bitcoin instead of gold, you'd have so much more money. So the reason Bitcoin is better than gold is because it's gone up by more than gold. It's not better in any other respect. I mean, certainly Bitcoin can't be used instead of gold. I mean, I can't make jewelry out of Bitcoin. I can't conduct electricity with Bitcoin. So I don't have any of gold's properties replicated by Bitcoin. But yes, Bitcoin has gone up by more than gold and therefore Bitcoin is better than gold. Okay, if that is your logic, if that's your criteria, then look at Dogecoin. Dogecoin this year is up way more than Bitcoin. Therefore, by the same logic, Dogecoin is better than Bitcoin. After all, had you bought Dogecoin at the beginning of the year, you'd have way more money than the people who bought Bitcoin. I mean, Dogecoin is better at being Bitcoin than Bitcoin, right? And as far as I'm concerned, hey, how does anybody know that Dogecoin isn't a new Bitcoin? 
that Bitcoin in this respect is the dinosaur. Bitcoin is yesterday. Dogecoin is tomorrow. You know, all you Bitcoin hodlers out there, right? You you old timers, you boomers who are holding on to your Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like the horse and buggy. Get with the times. Dogecoin, that's the automobile, right? I'm sure all you people who are you know, laughing at Dogecoin, right? Yeah, you probably would have been laughing at the automobile too when it was first invented. Oh, a horseless carriage, that'll never work, right? I'm happy with my horse and buggy, right? Well, that's the same thing, right? Why is Dogecoin not better than Bitcoin? After all, it's going up a lot faster than Bitcoin. Doesn't that make it better? I mean, if you actually examine the properties, I mean, maybe Dogecoin is actually the superior coin. Maybe it's got better properties. Maybe it's cheaper to use. Maybe it's faster to use. I mean, yes, it has a unlimited, I think, ultimate supply, but it has a predetermined inflation rate, which is pretty, pretty low uh, as far as how many Dogecoins are able to be created. I think the the rate at which those coins can be created over the next whatever it is, 20 years, 30 years, may be equal or less than how much gold is going to be mined. But there are all sorts of reasons, valid reasons that people could point to technologically to say that Dogecoin is actually an improvement on Bitcoin. But again, none of that really matters if your only criteria is recent performance. And now people will say, well, but you know, look at Bitcoin has 10 years of history. Who cares? 10 years is nothing. I mean, Dogecoin now has four months of history. What difference does it make, right? I mean, 10 years in the scheme of things, gold has been around for thousands of years. So if you're going to say Bitcoin is better than gold because of how well Bitcoin has done the last 10 years relative to gold, well, I think Dogecoin's four-month comparison is far more relevant to the time span where Bitcoin has been around for 10 years, right? Doge's life cycle is much closer to Bitcoin's than Bitcoin is to gold, right? To say that, oh, something that's been around for 10 years is going to replace something that's been around for 5,000, it makes more sense to say, hey, this Dogecoin that's been around for four months, even though it's been around longer than that. But I mean, now, you know, it's really shining. But the fact that it's been shining for four months relative to Bitcoin's 10 years, that four months is a much bigger percentage of the life of Bitcoin than Bitcoin's 10-year history is on the 5,000-year history of gold. So anything negative that you could say about gold, you could say about Bitcoin. Anything positive that you say about Bitcoin in relation to gold, you can say the same thing about Dogecoin in relation to Bitcoin. Now, a lot of people want to laugh about this because they'll say, oh, come on, Dogecoin was created as a joke. Exactly. It was a joke and it was making fun of the entire crypto space because all the cryptocurrencies are jokes. Not just the one that was created to be a joke, but all the ones that were created not to be a joke, they're jokes too. The problem is the people who drank all this Kool-Aid, they don't get the joke. You know, well, the joke's going to be on them. And ironically, maybe the joke that is Dogecoin is the punchline for the joke that is Bitcoin except none of the Bitcoin hodlers are laughing because they don't get the joke. But eventually, when the joke's on them, instead of laughing, they're going to be crying. Mm-hmm.